0: We have to proceed by positive ideals, things that are attractive. We have to find a way to make the disciplines attractive, each to the other, and to build in whatever way we can communities where people are talking to one another. And in that sense, I think I'm maybe again this feels so weird to say it more pragmatic than I? So I, I I don't I'm not interested in in trying to impose a view of the unity of knowledge. I don't, I don't know what the unity of knowledge is. I have the sense that there's something, when I read a book and understand something about it, okay, there's a human being on one end and there's a human being on this end, and somehow we've understood each other. And of course, in a conversation with others, which is how we do things at St. John's, or how you would do it truthfully in a, any seminar room, you, you get together with other people and you figure things out. It's it's a form of of human connection and human communication And that's what to me testifies to the unity of knowledge, is the possibility of communication across disciplines.
1: Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I'm also a faculty fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. So this is a special episode of the podcast because it was originally an event that took place at CUA in late April. The event was titled, Are the Humanities in Crisis?, It's also the 50th episode of the podcast, which sort of feels like a milestone that's worth mentioning. I've been doing this since 2018 and yeah, finally made it to episode 50. And this episode is a conversation basically between Xena Hitz, Chad Wellman, and myself. Uh, Xena and Chad have both been on the podcast before, Uh, but we got together to talk about some of the themes of Chad's most recent book, Permanent Crisis. Uh, This is a book that I wrote about in the Chronicle of Higher Education for their best academic books of 2021 review. Now, if you're a patron of the podcast, then you might remember a conversation I had with Chad about the book for a patrons only episode. And for what it's worth, I think it's definitely interesting to compare and contrast those two conversations. At any rate, I highly recommend Permanent Crisis and, of course, Lost in Thought, which is Zena's book for anyone who's interested in the fate of the humanities in the United States at this historical moment. I have benefited enormously from reading both of these books. Um, They're really different books, but in some ways, I think they complement one another nicely. And I think this conversation brings that out. As always, I would like to thank the IHE for underwriting this podcast and for hosting this event. I'm a full-time professor. I'm a mom. I'm a writer. There's absolutely no way I could continue to do this podcast without their critical support, for which I'm enormously grateful. To learn more about the IHE and the work that they do on human flourishing, you can go to their website, www.ihe.catholic.edu. And to learn more about this podcast, you can go to our new website. We are at www.sacredandprofanelove.com. On our website, you will find an archive of all of our past episodes and guests and also a blog where we post news related to the work that we do. And of course, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at EudaimoniaPod, and you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jen Frey, and I'm also on Instagram at Professor Frey. And of course, if you would like to support this podcast yourself, just go to www.patreon.com slash EudaimoniaPod and you can support us for just two bucks a month. Okay, with all that said, I hope you enjoy our conversation.
2: I'm Bradley Lewis, and on behalf of the Institute for Human Ecology, I want to welcome you to tonight's program, Are the Humanities in Crisis? The Institute for Human Ecology, as you know, is dedicated to the study of human flourishing in the light of the Catholic intellectual tradition, And we do this by supporting research in the humanities and social sciences, supporting graduate students who will carry this research forward into the future, and facilitating both scholarly communication and the dissemination of this research into the larger public through lectures and symposia and conferences. The valuable work of IHD is done by our fellows, some of whom you will meet this evening. One of our abiding concerns is to foster an appreciation and an understanding of human affairs in a non-reductive way. That is to understand them precisely as human affairs. What we often call the humanities are therefore of the greatest interest because they constitute an aspect of the academy and of our larger cultural life integrally connected to human flourishing. The occasion for tonight's discussion is the appearance of what we think is a very important book Permanent Crisis: The Humanities in a Disenchanted Age by Chad Wellman and Paul Ryder, published in 2021 by the University of Chicago Press. Our moderator this evening is well known to anyone who follows IHE events, Jennifer Frey. Jennifer is associate professor of philosophy and Peter and Bonnie McCausland fellow at the University of South Carolina. And she hosts a terrific podcast, which you have advertisements for there, called Sacred and Profane Love, which is run now to some 47 episodes and is sponsored by the Institute for Human Ecology. So with that, I turn things over to Professor Frey.
3: Well, thank you so much. And um, thanks to everybody for coming out this evening. And welcome to a very special episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm so grateful to the Institute for Human Ecology for sponsoring my podcast. I certainly would not have continued podcasting without their support. And the podcast has been successful beyond my wildest dreams. So again, just very grateful to the IHE. And I'm so excited about this particular episode, first and foremost, because normally I podcast Squirreled Away in my teenage daughter's room, which is like the the best soundproof room in our house. I'm not normally in such a lovely environment, and I don't normally get to chat with my guests in real life. But I am also just so excited to bring into conversation two people whose work on this topic I admire a great deal. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce my guests for this conversation. So Chad Wellman is a professor of German studies with appointments in history and media studies at the University of Virginia, where he teaches and writes about the history of knowledge and information. The History of Technology and Universities, and Media and Social Theory. He is co-director of UVA's new curriculum and principal of Brown College. He studied political theory at Davidson College and did his graduate work at UC Berkeley. And of course, he is the author of Permanent Crisis, which is a book that you should definitely read. And then my next guest is Zena Hitz, who is a tutor at St. John's College. Her book, Lost in Thought*. The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life, which honestly, I love this book so much. Everyone should read this book and, of course, listen to the podcast episodes that I've done on this book. So her book, Lost in Thought, recently appeared in paperback from Princeton University Press. She gives lectures through the Thomistic Institute on themes of leisure and its necessity for human beings. Her scholarly work is on law, virtue, friendship, and human nature in Plato and Aristotle. And she also founded the Catherine Project and now serves as president of its board of directors. So thank you for joining me, Chad and Zina. I want to talk about this question whether or not the humanities are in crisis. And I want to start just by inviting Chad to summarize kind of the main outline of your book, uh, which I think um, it's, it's just such a fascinating thesis. So I'll let you explain it rather than try to do it for you.
4: So very briefly, uh, but first off, uh, thanks so much uh, for the invitation. Uh, also, thanks for everything that you do uh, not only with the podcast, but your, uh, but your writing, your thinking, and you're just being in the world. And Zina, your book, uh, if you haven't read it, obviously, read it uh, this evening. I reread it over the weekend, and I was just... It's just so forcefully clarifying and compelling. So it's really great to be with the two of you here. So Permanent Crisis, The Humanities in a Disenchanted Age. I think the first thing I would say is... It could be really quick reading because you have to grant me, you don't have to grant me, uh, a premise. And within the first 15 pages, you can stop if you don't grant that premise. But because it's pretty uh, pretty crucial. And the premise is something like the following. Both in terms of scholarship, but also in terms of a broader readerly public imagination, the humanities, the continuity of the humanities, the humanities as a project that stretches across millennia, that stretches across cultures, that stretches across institutions, most often imagined to stretch back to Greek and Roman antiquities of all sorts and everything in between with a a, a great rebirth period in the Renaissance has been greatly exaggerated. And this continuity has been exaggerated. And this gets us to the second part of not just the book, because that's just the first 15 pages. If you don't grant that, you can stop. No, they're, they're continuous. To what we call, Paul and I call, the crisis of the modern humanities. And by modern humanities, we mean modern not in terms of a certain periodization, a certain time period, or even necessarily a temporal marker at all, but primarily a disposition. That's a certain present-mindedness. Right? So the modern humanities... Are in, in our lights defined by, characterized by a, a certain present-mindedness, by which we mean instead of taking as their object of concern disorderly desires, uh, the, trans, the kind of the transtemporal ordering of intellectual desire, they're always wrapped up and pitted over against some contemporary problem. It's either in the late 19th century, the natural sciences. Uh, in the early 20th century in the United States, a certain vocationalism. It's the the Soviet Union and the threat of technocratic hyper-organization in the Cold War. Today, it might be, uh, it can be lots of things, neoliberalism, right? So the modern humanities, to our mind, are defined by a certain present-mindedness. And that's wrapped up with kind of the second part of the permanent crisis, and this is what the, the book really deals with, is that, to our minds, the modern humanities are fundamentally an institutional project, right? The the modern humanities don't refer to, or at least should not be conflated with particular intellectual disciplines, particular intellectual practices. They're primarily an institutional organization. Think of it as an administrative unit, right? And this is their present mindedness, call it reactionary, call it a rear guard project, was primarily, we argue, the fruit of the modern research university as it first crystallized in German universities and then was expanded into this collective administrative unit in the first three or four decades in the United States in universities. So that should be the first thing. We're not talking about the permanent crisis of philosophy, the permanent crisis of literature per se, but something a bit more precise. Um, The permanent crisis of an institutional project that first came to be called the humanities, at least in the United States, in the early 1930s, but especially in the 1940s. But it first crystallized in in a German context, and we can talk about this later. And for nearly a century now, claims about the crisis of the humanities haven't simply been laments or elegies. I think we want to say they've also been constitutive of the very humanities, this present-mindedness, this sense that the humanities are in crisis but also, paradoxically, perhaps, the only solution, that which can heal all of the problems invoked in the name of the present crisis. Right? So it's, it's, it's this Freudian kind of uh, dialectic where uh, the things that we make are necessary to manage our lives, call them the humanities, but they also make us miserable. In short, that's the, the, present, uh, the permanent crisis uh, of, of the humanities.
3: Okay, thanks. Yeah, so I mean, I I'm I'm very convinced with your thesis that there is something that we can call the modern humanities and it does have this very specific institutional context which you trace back to the rise of the modern research university and sort of you tell a really fascinating story about how the how the humanities conceive of themselves over time, starting back starting back at the rise of the research university. But I'm just wondering, what do you think, Sina? <laughs> well, I also want to to thank Jennifer
0: for bringing us together and the the uh, Institute for Humane Studies. And it's great to be here. And I also want to thank Chad and, and Jen for bringing us together because my book came out almost now two years ago, just running up on two years. And I've loved the reception, but it has been almost, the reception that I've received directly has been almost universally positive. And it hasn't given me as much opportunity as I would like to really test and clarify and push to the limits the kinds of ideals that I talk about in the book. And Chad's book, I think, is significantly different enough from mine that there are disagreements. I might in my own contrarian combative tendency, trained in philosophy, I might exaggerate those clashes. Chad, in his uh, irenic, uh, he, uh, more humanistic way, may may try the to- The I to, No
4: one's ever called that <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll take well, it, uh, bring it. Uh. Take it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but to get to, to the point, so I was struck reading Chad's book, you know, that one of the rhetorically powerful things about it is, all of these quotes from professors, you know, going back to, into the, the the turn of the nineteenth, uh, turn of the eighteenth century, uh, saying the humanities are in crisis. <laughs> and and they both he and and writer do an excellent job of finding words and phrases and sentences from um, very different what we think of as being a very different context in nineteenth century German university or the early twentieth century American university, where where people are saying exactly the sorts of things they say now. The humanities are in crisis. And I think that that I agree. So I, I, there, I'm going to first focus on the things which I think I agree with, or there's an affinity with, and then I'll I'll try to hone in on the disagreement, which which might take might take a bit of time for us to work out among among each other. The point of agreement I think is this: that um, the way that I describe intellectual life in Lost in Thought is as a human good or a set of human goods which exists in, in conflict with what I call the world, in quotation marks, the locus of competition, the struggle for status, the struggle for power, the struggle for money, and so on. So for me, intellectual life, which is broader than the humanities, it, I mean it also to include uh, mathematics and science. And we we might get to that, I hope, in this conversation the connection between the types of knowledge, but that it, it requires the intellectual life for it to, to function, for it to provide the human good it's meant to do. It has to be withdrawn from concerns of, of status, competition, and when it's taken that way and, and really undertaken as a form of an inner life, an individual, through which individuals can find their dignity and through which crucially, and this part of the view I think has, I, I've thought about more since the book came out, a way of connecting with other human beings, so it's a intellectual life provides us with the ground for connecting with other people, with the rest of humanity, and I mean that in as general and as universal way as as I could mean it. So if if that's what intellectual life is like, and it it is because because the world and because our desires for the human good, our desires to learn and, and understand and to contemplate. These are in us, they're not just something that's out there in institutions. Because they're in us and because they are regularly built into virtually every human institution, there is constant crisis, there's constant struggle. Uh, There is always a necessity to remind oneself of the ideals, to clarify the ideals, to try to return to the ideals, to ask oneself whether the ideals are really doing their job, is what I'm doing, really for the good of my community or for myself? Or, or it, it, have I given in to uh, some kind of academic status climb? Or am I you know, going on all these talks for the sake of the money? Or whatever. There's always, or there's ideological questions. There's political questions. There's various kinds of agendas which are always threatening to take over our intellectual work and our intellectual thinking. And so I think you should expect uh, regular cycles of a sense of corruption, a sense of inauthenticity, a sense that uh, we're, we're, we're fighting against um, forces which are outside of us. And that I think comes through very clearly in the book. So I, I think I agree that there is a permanent crisis in the humanities. The humanities are defined in some way by what they're not. But I think that that's part of their power and part of what makes them even more worthy of preservation. So the step which uh, I think I, I don't take once we think the humanities are in crisis, the step that, I don't, that Chad takes that I, I, I would not take would be to say, well, look, clearly we keep calling it a crisis, so there's not really a crisis, or we keep calling it a crisis, so let's dial back our expectations for what we should be getting out of the study of literature or the study of philosophy or any of the humanities fields. Let's, let, let's try to develop a more realistic point of view about what we're doing so that we're not just rising and falling on the sense of our living up to our ideals or our failure to live up to our ideals. And I, that I think is not right. So I, I think that the structure that Chad and Paul Reiter have noticed is a structure that belongs to any kind of idealistic living it's not specific to the humanities, it's totally general. So I think about Christianity, for instance. Jesus says, love thy neighbor as thyself, and love thy enemies and bless those that hate them. And I think if you looked at Christian institutions in any particular time period, you would find numerous claims. People are not doing this. This is not loving your neighbor. This is not loving your enemy. You know, it, we are failing to be Christians. Christianity isn't working. Uh, Christianity, like any, I think, any religion, any, any, any serious attempt to live well for human beings involves these kinds of conflicts between the, our ideals and our ability to live up to them and our institutions' ability to live up to them. And that doesn't mean that they're not crucially important. In fact, I think it points to just exactly just how crucially important they are. So uh, that's one way of putting this agreement. Now I'll just say one more thing in, in, in danger of uh, soaking up all the time. Um, that I think one of the things that one doesn't hear much in the discourse about the humanities these days in academics, self-identification of themselves. Uh, and it certainly doesn't appear in, in at least the way the way Chad and Paul Ryder talk in their book about themselves the humanities are for the sake of our happiness. Study is for the sake of the human good. It's for the sake of happiness. And uh, that may not be neatly definable. Um, It may uh, may evade our attempts to sort of define it and set boundaries about it. And uh, we may, and especially since we live in, I think Chad's concerned about this, we live in a community that is pluralistic. There's a variety of points of view. There's a variety of sets of values. And our institutions have to belong to the whole community, our public institutions. So thinking about the human good, thinking about happiness, thinking about humanity and the good of humanity in that context is very challenging. But I do think it is absolutely necessary. And I think to encourage us to dial back our ideals or to lower our sights uh, is, is a colossal mistake. I think we've actually, the humanities have underpromised. Chad says they've they over-promised, they've promised too much, they've promised to solve all our problems. I think we have not emphasized sufficiently that living by ideals, renewing our imaginations, learning the arts of understanding, these are what give us strength and power against all of the forces out there, whether they be forces from industrialization, forces from technology, forces from global corporate rule, whatever they are, however we want to define them. So that's that's uh, in a nutshell my disagreement. I hope I haven't gone on for too long.
3: No, 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 yes. not at all. Okay. I want to try to maybe sharpen the disagreement a, a little bit.
4: It's sufficiently sharp for me if you want. Yeah.
3: Well, <laughs> maybe I want to sharpen the knife. I don't know, but yeah. So I mean, just to bring out for listeners who haven't read Chad's book. You know, It seems towards the end of your book, I mean, you you have this historical account, which I found really fascinating and compelling, about how the modern humanities is something completely distinct from the traditional liberal arts, you know, the liberal arts are the arts that make us free, and we study for Mm -hmm. its own sake and not for any utilitarian purpose, and then the, the kind of Renaissance conception of the humanities, that the modern humanities are something new, and that they are essentially related to the crisis of modernity, right? So their self-understanding as humanities comes to be that they're not the natural sciences, right? That they are also the place where people are going to find the things that modernity has made seem impossible or pushed to the corners. So like what is anything valuable? Does anything have meaning? Like, what's the story now about ourselves? Like, it's the job of the humanists, you know, to to give you purpose in an otherwise alienated and soul-crushing <laughs> modern, disenchanted hellscape. And so, the claim that you kind of build towards at the end, because you do want to get away from crisis talk. It's not helpful. I'm not sure whether or not you want to get away from the modern humanities. That's a question I have for you that I hope you will answer, because it seems to me that possibly you do, because if the modern humanities is essentially built up with crisis, then disentangling the crisis from the modern humanities might mean that the modern humanities itself ceases to be a thing. But, you know, so you, you work yourself up to this position where you want to say, well, the humanities have oversold themselves, right? And this is where I think you sort of align yourself with Weber at the end. And of course, I wanna hear the extent to which you align yourself with Weber in the end. Um, but you know, Weber famously argued that professors shouldn't be prophets or priests. They shouldn't you know, be imposing or indoctrinating values as part of of educating university students, um, they should be dedicated to Wissenschaft, as Weber understands it, which is a kind of disciplinary, specialized knowledge, a kind of expertise, right? That has a sort of utilitarian value, and that is connected to a somewhat peculiar account of progress. And that this kind of Weberian account, I think you think is more realistic. Possibly you think it's more valuable. I'm not really sure how tied, how closely you align yourself with this view. But then it's really clear how, you know, Zina and I will be like, but no. (laughs) Uh, No, you know, actually, it's it's, it's not that it's, or at least I'm not arguing that the professors should be prophets and priests priests should be priests but, but we can't just be experts either and especially as philosophers expertise is not very appealing as a form of knowledge for us because what on earth are we experts in and for us it's about something more much more robust like wisdom right and i certainly don't want to i, I don't want to give that up And I don't think that holding on to something more robust makes me a prophet or a priest, but just a philosophy professor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So anyway, sorry, that was a bit long, but maybe I'll just invite you to respond.
4: Yeah, I have a lot to talk about. Uh, So (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll choose a a few things. I think so first, Zina, I think what I would say, I would say something like the following, which is I actually see. And I understand that this would this would have to be presented as an argument because it seems uh, so not the case. I actually see permanent crisis as not just compatible with, but may I dare say, a companion piece to uh, to to, to loss and thought for the following reason. Because I think the reason why I'm so worked up, the reason why I spent you know how many ever pages and footnotes and there's a reason there's a reason for that right we could talk about the apparatus that is you know university of chicago book and the reason i did that is because for various autobiographical reasons which we may not may or may not get into is that my concern is what the humanities as a modern institutional project have done is precisely to constrain and deflect our capacity to attend to the reasons why I you know why I went to grad school or thought I did, uh, the reasons why I continue to teach despite the the overwhelming uh, kind of bureaucratic value capture of the modern university and the humanities it's like a bait and switch is that the humanities are a fixed function as I see them of a modern institution in which precisely those goods that both of you sing about beautifully, are presented as those goods, but they're cordoned off, safely secured, in administrative units, in ex- forms of expertise. The philosopher, as a, as a professor, like, that's, that's an invention of the past 150, 200 years, right? That is a form of expertise, which Weber, Weber was even... You know, philosophy as, as, as an expertise, I mean, that was still shocking you know, uh, in, in 1917. So I, to me, this is funny to see how we understand ourselves in such you know, different ways. Uh, and I think that's you know, part of what I'm trying to come to terms with, is that the modern humanities are a giant deflection apparatus in which we think we're you know, trying to, to read carefully, collectively. We're, we think we're cultivating Subordinating ourselves to forms of, of an education to that intellectual desire, which was kind of vague. You know, I wanted to read. For me, I read because I wanted to get out of Western North Carolina. North Carolina, I went to Davidson, then I went to graduate school, and those reasons became something completely different. Some of those reasons became wonderfully different. They attained new shapes, right? I finally learned how to read with a certain amount of attention instead of like the 16-year-old chat. You can only imagine. You think I'm gesticulating now. I was like reading all over everywhere. So I became a much more disciplined reader. But also, I feel like the goods with which I began or I I had in mind the reasons why I began were completely reformulated. You know, they could be reformulated in terms of, you know, as a faculty member, publications at a big public university, enrollment numbers because of anxieties about cash flows to departments. And our argument hist- like conceptually and historically is that was precisely what the product, project of the modern humanities was because the beauty I see in Lost in Thought or the beauty I see in a tradition which I sharply distinguish from the modern humanities, something like the Studio Humanitatis, right, of, of Petrarch, who was famously, is probably a, f- a certain form of apostasy, Right. against the philosopher, you know, the Aristotelian Middle Ages uh, university curriculum. He was against those things precisely because his argument was that the goods of reading, the goods of re- rhetorical form, had been captured and cordoned off in a university and taken out of the commercial realm, taken out of the life of the diplomat. And the ways that you talk about those goods is what I, wanna, I, what I would argue is precisely what I'm trying to to say and give an account of how, why, and also the consequences of how those goods were taken into the university. And just think, I'll stop here, like a proto-figure before the humanities kind of even existed, you know, Kant, 1798, his conflict at the faculty. What's going on there isn't arguing for a giant public discursive, you know, to be anachronistic, Habermasian view Of arguing in print. No, he's cordoning off and identifying by name those who get to engage in the play of reason, and they're a very small group within the philosophy faculty, which didn't even really exist. They're the only ones who get to enjoy what he calls the truth-seeking, because they have a responsibility over it, and it's its capture from what we might have imagined was a public sphere. To me, that's that's the real travesty, maybe the idiosyncratic way of how, how I see permanent crisis as a, as a companion piece, um, because all the things that that I see you arguing for, I see are those are were deflected away from those things as we come to practice as certain shapes of in certain shapes of expertise, you know, someone with a PhD and. German studies. I mean, what the heck? Like, what, is, what, is, what is that? So that, that, that's what, that, that's what I, that's what I would, I, I would say. So that's a giant Hegelian bear hook. Right? I understand that, but it's so, but it's like, it's the reason, it's the reason, the reason I wrote the book is that at UVA, we were in the seven, uh, seven year general education uh, curricular reform. And uh, the, my colleagues couldn't make sense of the terms that we were had so ready to hand, like the humanities, the sciences, and all those things. And it was a giant political brawl, and I was trying to understand, wait, these categories, do they bear any necessary relationship to the things we think we do with scholars and teachers?
3: So just just to, I'm gonna invite you to respond, but just to clarify, is that your way of saying, no, I'm not a Baybarian, really? <laughs> Because can I
4: defer I- that question? Because that's a bigger question. Uh, I, no, I, no, I would say uh, I'll come back to that.
0: Okay, but, but can I ask you, but, I mean, I, I, I have some thoughts. What you're saying is very interesting, but can you just clarify what you what you mean when you say the humanities have overpromised? What well, should they promise?
4: What they should promise is that uh, a certain form of status and credential, which is what they are. That's what modern universities... Um, offer qual- as in as modern institutions, right? Now, what what happens, right? W- what happens in our classroom? What happens in our office hours? What happens, hopefully, in our work in writing? In my experience, is is radically different from the 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 prefix preset values that a university as a modern bureaucratic institution can offer, contract, and can justify and legitimate. Okay,
0: so. But I think th- this is very interesting because I, I think I thought I was coming in as the, the idealist, but now oh, you have the now, I, now I feel like I'm gonna turn into the realist. That's a little disorienting. So let me try to, that's not a place I normally find myself. On the one hand, I want to say, I don't even believe in the humanities. What I believe is in the disciplines of understanding and the use of the imagination, which I think cut across all of the disciplines of knowledge, including mathematics and science. And I teach in a place that has no departments, where we have the opportunity to see how different arts of understanding, different modes of understanding, different disciplines of understanding interconnect with one another and can be seen as related human endeavors. Okay. So... On the other hand, and I would like to see, I think like you, a institutions which were recognized this type of activity as a human good, not a profession, but a human good. But I think I think this is true. The human this human good like most human goods, it needs some kind of profession to safeguard it, to keep it, to preserve it, to pass it on. And I have no objection to there being institutions of that kind, even though I, yeah, I, I'm used to being the anarchist in the room. So I'm, you know, but if Chad wants to be the anarchist, he can, he can take the anarchist. Out. So I, I want to say that there's something uh, reductive about the way, Chad, that you're talking about the institutions of the humanities. So. On the one hand, I'd be the first to, to complain about the, the smallness of mind, the superficiality, the excessive use of political issues, the, all of the misunderstandings which are rife in the humanities disciplines as I know them, all of the ways in which it's done badly, all of the work that's done that isn't really worth doing, all of that is true. But I know that those institutions are safeguarding Something. I know that there are teachers and students who engage in the disciplines of, of thought and learning and understanding, whose lives, students whose lives are transformed by encounters with particular books or particular ways of thinking. I know that there is a research that's done that is illuminating and important and enormously helpful for people who want to carry on these practices into the future. And I know also that. As little as 25 years ago, when I was an undergraduate, we were doing better at having these practices spill out over into the into the broader culture. So I think, for instance, the the mid 20th century, which I think it's kind of short shrift in permanent crisis, which is not to say it's perfect. And I'm actually not interested in nostalgia for its own sake. I'm interested in nostalgia for the sake of recovering ideals, which we can then live now, but uh, I do think that, you know, they, they, these people are very earnest. They talk about the human, they talk about the human good and, and the family of humanity. Uh, this is the, the age of the crisis of man, as Mark Greif puts it. Their earnestness, it seems to me, is something good. It's imperfect, it's corrupted sometimes, but it's good. And it spills over into the broader culture. So that I think about Huey Newton, who founded the Black Panthers, his brother, he didn't go to college, he graduated from high school virtually illiterate, that his, his brother went to college and his brother Melvin left his copy of Plato's Republic lying around and, and Huey Newton taught himself how to read by slowly reading Plato's Republic over and over again. Now, that's an example of something which, this isn't happening in a university, this is non-institutional learning, but it is somehow related to something that's happening in a university. And I think you, you dig into the 20th century or the 19th century you, you, to the, the accounts of workmen's institutions, mechanics institutes, all of these, these grassroots intellectual organizations. Um, and what you see is that, that work that is in so, however badly, however incompetently safeguarded by the universities, it's making its way out and it's doing the thing it's supposed to do in the lives of ordinary people. And the danger now, which I know Jen will wanna talk about too, we do live in a, in a time of, I think, unique crisis. That is, it's not as if once we abolish, once the humanities institutions um, dry up from lack of funding or dry up from lack of students, it's not as if we're gonna have this tremendous renaissance that happens there out in the world. We need those, uh, I mean, it might happen. I hope it does, I pray to God it does. But what I think we might face instead is just a kind of desert for these kinds of study. And I think that that would be, I think that is, not would be, I'm not gonna predict the future. I think it is a catastrophe whenever there are uh, large swathes of our communities in these wealthy societies who are not acquainted with these types of learning and with the arts of understanding. It is a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe in a way that I was thinking, you know, suppose someone didn't know what music was, you know, and they found it on their Instagram feed and they're like, oh my gosh, wow, this is really cool. You you would think this is something has gone wrong with us if we don't have institutions which promote music, build music, pass on music, do music to the highest level, and then which in some way radiate out into the broader culture. So, anyway, that's
3: my thought. Well, so I'm going to invite you to respond. But first, I just maybe slightly reorient things. I don't know. But I mean, so I am interested, obviously, in institutions of higher institutions of learning and with what right we call them higher. We know that they are higher in price, (laughs) but that doesn't seem like the relevant sense of higher. But look, you know, one thing that I am absolutely convinced by in your book rightly or wrongly i don't know but i'm convinced that you know the modern humanities is this institutional thing right that comes to be in a certain institutional context and in particular the rise and the development of the research university and of course one thing that's very interesting about this conversation that's happening right now is that you have two people who are at r1 research universities and then you have someone who's at st johns which is very it's a very different a very different model of higher education. And so one, you know, one question that I think we should be thinking about in a a very serious way is the question about the extent to which the humanities can thrive in the research university as it is currently configured, where it just is a fact that I am not going to get tenure. I have tenure, thank God. But I'm not going to get tenure based on the public philosophy that I do or the glowing student evaluations I get or the lives my teaching has transformed. It is going to be a quantitative measure of my isolated research outputs, which will be evaluated by other experts on their contribution to knowledge, right. And that's the model. And if I want to get full, I better stop podcasting <laughs> and start producing more Weberian Wissenschaft, right. This you kind just of- need to get
4: somebody to put that in, in, in hardback, you know, print out the transcript. Uh, it'll probably sell much better than permanent crisis and you're fine.
3: Yeah, I and that's the thing. I mean, I was filling out my annual review in the airport on the way here, and I ha- i kept have—I was in the airport with my department chair, and I had to keep asking him, "Wait, where do I put all of my writing from this year? Because it's not in academic journals; it's in stuff people read." And <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, he was like, "Yeah." There he lies was, the problem. He was like, "Okay, maybe in this section, you should just naturally, because di- of course, it's an online form." And nothing that I was doing over the past year was neatly fitting in any of the categories. And he's like, well, within this category, you can just subdivide and make your own categories. And like, it'll make sense to people. But like, but he's like, but make sure people know that that thing you wrote in the point was like 5,000 words. (laughs) You know, that it was somewhat serious. (laughs) I'm like,
0: okay. It could be counted.
3: That's right, because otherwise it's not going to get counted. And so I guess you know my question is, if the humanities are in crisis in the most basic sense that we don't have majors, our graduate students are depressed because they're pretty sure they're not getting jobs, our departments are being slashed, things feel very fraught and uncertain. If they're in crisis in that ordinary sense, or that they're in crisis in the sense that they're in decline, right? to what extent do our institutions need to change, right? And should we be thinking about how our institutions should change such that maybe the modern humanities become something more like the traditional liberal arts, or maybe they become something else, something new? Yeah, I'm just wondering what what
4: you think. Yeah, I mean, my my contention would be, one, to stretch, I'm gonna do the inverse of kind of the, the premise of the argument. The, the catastrophe of which you spoke, Azina, uh, is, is of a longer durée, right? It's early 19th century, mid-19th century, when all of these ways of valuing, of deciding how and what is worth valuing the first ideas of publication as a marker of intellectual value, when Schelling... 19th century before he came uh, in the 19th century before he uh, you know moved to Berlin when he um, you know played several offers from different u- German universities off one another I mean these things that are now make up the air the institutional air of, of, of universities this is when they were being forged right I mean in, in an attempt to make information and value portable across a giant Prussian bureaucracy like, that's the, like the, that's the in the weeds part of this argument, that the catastrophe was long baked in, it's, inst- it's baked into the institution. And my concern to get to your, what I take to be kind of the, the motivation of your question, Jen, is that the humanities were, they, they weren't something that suffered from the onslaught of this. They were an intentional design of this project to cordon off questions of meaning and value into one part of a modern institution, such that, for example, na- the natural sciences could be let off the hook. right? We can put off questions of value and meaning, which is explicitly how it was you know articulated in the, in the the German philosophy faculty was one faculty that included everything, you know, from philology and history to physics and zoology until for many universities well into the early part of the 20th century. But this idea of a unity of knowledge was something that kept coming very much under pressure. And one of the biggest kind of fissures was this question of, right, where are questions of value and meaning going to go? So the, for me, one of the biggest catastrophes is, is this obscuring, this occlusion of the precisely the goods that we're talking about and then settling them into one administrative department and unit, that can be concerned with questions of value and meaning, while all the other forms of knowledge, the natural sciences, the physical sciences, the things whose use and utility can be much more publicly, i.e. in terms of the state, communicated. They can just go on doing what they're doing. So that, to me, that's one further catastrophe of this. one. we obscure the goods and we end up talking about something called the humanities, but what we're really talking about are my mind, I think, right, um, arts of understanding, as you put it, or intellectual practices and discipline that have a much broader, they break out of the university all, all the time, and they, they always have. The, the modern research university has tried to capture them for its own purposes, and because precisely their arts of understanding, because precisely education, both discipline, disciplines and liberates, you, you can't hold those goods back. 100% what we do in the classroom, hopefully sometimes what we write, those goods cannot be contained despite the efforts of this modern institution. So my concern is that we're precisely obscuring the goods and mistaking, like, oh, we got to defend the humanities. But like, what is the necessary relationship between, for example, the utter collapse of VAs, even at the University of Virginia, in English and history, not to mention German, over the past five years, we thought we were immune. And the goods that we're actually talking about, I'm submitting not much.
3: Do either of you think that a return to something like a substantive, regulative ideal of the unity of knowledge, right? So that rather than understand ourselves as working in the minds of our disciplinary silo so that we can produce these discrete, isolated products of knowledge that reflect our disciplinary expertise, if we had something more like the idea that in everything that we do as university professors, we are contributing to knowledge, right? something that uh, we think has to be coherent and unified such that Whatever they're saying over in physics has to bear on whatever we're saying in philosophy and, you know, other humanistic disciplines. I mean, this was something like Newman's idea of a university as contributing to universal knowledge in his sense. I mean, would some some recovery of a regulative ideal of universal knowledge or the unity of knowledge, would that help? So uh,
0: I think, okay, my mind is spinning with a lot of thoughts. So I don't know what exactly is going to come out, but that's all right. I, I don't think that trying to organize, I, I think part of the, one of the pitfalls of the kind of thing that Chad describes in his book are these attempts to systematize knowledge and say, okay, there's this thing, the unity of knowledge, and, and we're pretty sure that its unity lies in this, and thereby the other disciplines are going to fall in this direction. I don't think we're really capable of doing that. I don't know whether we are in any context, and we certainly aren't in this pluralistic context where we are now. So for me, the question has always been about communication. That is, reading. I mean, I, one of the reasons why I love my job more than anything, I get to read these classics of mathematics and science. It's so interesting Oh my gosh, it's so intellectually exciting. It's the best thing ever. Okay. Now, I feel like if more people who were quote unquote in the humanities like I am, I'm classics in philosophy, if they had if if they took an interest in them, I think it would be illuminating. I don't see anyone who has the authority to go to, say, a physics department and say, you know what, we, we've decided you're subordinate to philosophy. Like you have to do things in a particular way. So, we, we have to to proceed by positive ideals, things that are attractive. We, we have to find a way to make the disciplines attractive each to the other and to build in whatever way we can um, communities where people are talking to one another. And so in that sense, I think I'm maybe Again, this feels so weird to say it. More pragmatic than either. So I, 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 don't. I'm not interested in in trying to impose a view of the unity of knowledge. I don't. I don't know what the unity of knowledge is. I have the sense that there's something when I commute, when I read a book and understand something about it. Okay, there's a human being on one end and there's a human being on this end, and somehow we've understood each other. And of course, in a conversation with others, which is how we do things at St. John's, or how you would do it truthfully in a, any seminar room. you you get together with other people and you figure things out. It's it's a form of, of human connection and human communication. And that's what to me testifies to the unity of knowledge is the possibility of communication across disciplines, real communication, substantive communication. A lot of interdisciplinary things maybe don't meet that standard. And I I object, I mean, I talk about it in the book, I object to focusing research universities, and especially in humanities departments, only on research. I think there should be more emphasis on teaching. I think the class sizes should be smaller. There's all kinds of material conditions and things that professors complain about, like the the corporatization of universities, the, the use of sort of HR benchmarks to determine what counts as knowledge and so on. Okay, there's all kinds of complaints we could have, but I think that you 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 fight with the army you have. So the the question I think for us is, wherever each of us is, whether we're at an R one university, whether we're at Catholic university, whether we're at St John's, is, you know, what can I do to make these activities as human goods real in my community? And I don't know whether I I can say much more than
3: that. Right. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Well I'm gonna exercise a oh, lot of restraint thinking, yeah. for oh do you want to respond? Well just because I think
4: I hadn't thought about it like this and and so uh, I'm gonna shock myself and say yeah actually I think I do believe in university a uh, unity of knowledge not in a metaphysical sense, not in a taxonomic sense, but in the word you use community in, in an ethical sense because and here's what I mean by that. I mentioned the curriculum reform, which this book was written, uh, so it's it's auto-fiction of a a barbarian sort, right? Detached and, uh, you know, passionately detached. What I did for five years, and I didn't articulate it to various people at the time, was I spent 20 hours a week probably meeting with faculty across the university and my colleagues, and we had these huge knockdown, dragout drag-out intellectual fights is not trying to categorize knowledge in some kind of late 19th century Neo-Kantian map. Absolutely not. But trying to help them articulate what they, nev- they never would have used language like this. But it's in, it's, we don't quote Jefferson. We quote Aristotle. But they don't, my colleagues don't know that. And because what I saw my job as doing is to help, one, I was curious, I wanted to learn, but to help them understand what they're actually committed to I would call the intrinsic goods, the goods internal to the doing of whatever discipline they're doing. They just don't call it that. So I go talk to the physicists, and it's not about how does that map up with some form of logic in the philosophy department. It's like, why do you do this? How do you understand the good things and the reasons that you're doing when you do this? Okay, that's what. here's what I heard. I'll come back. And then going from uh, area to area to do it, sometimes it mapped onto departments, sometimes it didn't. But what it forced us to do, and this is what made us, quote, a corporate body in that kind of Parisian <laughs> sense, right, Universitas was that we're all committed in some form or other to a whole array, this dappled array of goods internal to disciplined study and intellectual doing and exercises and that's what we fight for, that's what we want to do and that's what we aspire to do. And it just so happens that sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't map on to the institutional structure or even the institution in which that right now currently allows us to care and sustain those goods, which is only relatively recent, right? And so my bet is that maybe those institutions will be otherwise and look differently.
3: Yeah. I mean, I actually think, and then I'm going to open it up to audience questions, but I actually think the way that you articulated the unity of knowledge is not so far off from Newman, but we can talk about that later because <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. But, um, but now uh, I do want to, I don't normally do this in my podcast, but obviously this isn't a normal podcast. This is a um, uh, like a supercharged episode. So I just want to invite anyone from the audience to ask a question and to continue the conversation. So if you have a question, just raise your hand. Yes, in the back. So what you need to do actually is walk to that microphone so that the people listening to this have any chance of hearing you.
5: Well, thanks so much. That is this on? Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much. That was a really interesting talk. Yeah, my my head is spinning a little bit too. And I guess I'm wondering do, like what prescriptive I'm jumping to like, okay, great, like what do we do? <laughs> like you've you've got, you know, professors at an R1 university, we've got St. John's, we've got we've got CUA, different models of education. It seems like there's kind of a shared assumption that there are real human goods at stake here and that they matter beyond whatever disciplinary silo we're a part of, I think. I think that's a shared assumption. So what next? I mean, I guess you can podcast. I guess you can, you can write popular books. I, you know, I guess you can do all sorts of things. Maybe your little brother picks up a book you're reading. But those all seem to be going against the grain of the institutions that we're a part of, seems to me. So I, I'll just leave it, leave it at that.
3: Yeah, so um, what, what now? I mean, what concrete thing, what do we dissolve the modern humanities? Do we just help the modern humanities to better articulate their own goods and hope for the best? And, you know, German departments continue to consolidate and close down. Should we, should we even be bothered?
0: I've resisted really giving any large-scale answer. To this question It's a question I get a lot. For the simple reason that I think that one of the ills that we suffer from in our institutions is thinking on too broad a scale, uh, as if there's somehow like a five-point plan that could be adopted by every institution that would somehow revive the humanities. And I don't think it's like that. And I, I, I'm I, very aware, and someone always reminds me whenever I forget, start to forget that there's a huge number of, there's a huge array of types of institutions in higher education, huge. So I feel kind of proud of myself because I've been to like three or four different kinds. Mm-hmm. But there's many, 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 many more kinds. And each of those places is unique. They have unique communities. They have unique challenges. They have unique sets of students. They have unique people in there. So I, I honestly mm-hmm. think that what what needs to be done needs to be discerned. In the moment, in real time, in a real place, by the people who care about it. And what you see where you're sitting, I mean, my my hope, my desperate hope, even though I haven't met anyone yet who's actually in this situation, you know, there's someone who can actually be in a position to to change their institution, institute a common core, for instance. That's something which there's funding to do, and and which I think is a is a is it's just a little step, but it's something to have a common core, at a at a public university or major university. You know, uh, one of the things I I you know I founded this thing called the Catherine Project, which is a nonprofit for adult education. I have to plug it a little bit. It's free. It's simple. It's no no degrees, no grades, no tuition. And one of the things that shocked me is how many. I was thinking this would be for people who didn't have the opportunity to do this kind of learning, the people that are left out. How many academics come to us desperate, desperate for intellectual community and to be reminded of of the meaning of what they're doing? And at first, we turned them away. And then after a while, I was like, you know what? (laughs) Like, a need is a need. You know, it's, it's, so I think that rebuilding intellectual communities on your mm-hmm. campus where you are is, is so crucial. It's so important and in person when you can, in person, substantive, not related to research and just try to find for yourself with your colleagues, with your friends, with your family, what you can.
4: Um, I would just echo that. And it's, it goes back to something Zina you said and it's, it's this question of who cares and who will care, like right, for the goods, the things that we love. And I found the exact same thing among my own faculty in, in, in Charlottesville. The, the, the intellectual desire, the the sometime abused, ill-formed, the the misbuilding, right, as, as, as Nietzsche would say, of that was, was rampant. It was so sad, but also so energizing and 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 hope-giving and <clears throat> excuse me. But it really came back to that who cares and who will care going forward. And so most curricular projects, in my experience, when you know, I read, because I historicize everything, you know, I read the last 20 years when every institution of higher education in the U.S. You know, tried to you know, undertake one of these big uh, gen ed reforms. And they almost all were, quote, student focused. Within, within two months, it was like, oh, that's insane. The people who need need help, the people who need each other, the people who can care because they're institutionalized are us. And so it was really that focusing on that corporate body, like the universitas as as a guild, right? We've forgotten our guild-like nature. Um, And so it's curricular form is always local. It's always about who is there to care over time and to shepherd those goods and then completely uh, transform them. And it's totally political right? in, in, in the highest and lowest sense of, of, of that term. And I'll just, one last thing I would mention, because an, an analog, but not really, to the Catherine Project. And over the past two years, one of the most life-giving things I did was help start with kind of our School of Continuing Education, a liberal arts program for students, for, for working adults who who had some college credit, but not a BA, which is about 64 to 65% of the US population over 22, right, while the BA havers still hovers like in the 30s. Oh my word. I mean, it was completely liberating and an utter failure the first two weeks because I was using categories like philosophy and literature that, that read PhD, Whole Foods, visiting, you know, (laughs) that read me. And then, but once I just, you know, just brought, okay, we're just going to read Aristotle. We're we're just going to read Trisimum and Then the intellectual desire got to flow in ways that I hadn't experienced, but it really was about community building then and there. And they learned their own idioms. They learned their own rhetoric. They had to respond to each other. And it was, again, like Zena's question, who's going to care for these goods, that however inarticulate they are, we can, we can shape and craft together. But it's, it's, it's hard, inglorious work that doesn't show up on, a, uh, you know, the annual report. Yeah, for sure.
3: Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Can you walk to the? Thank you.
6: Thank you so much. Um, this was great. All three of you, I, I admire your work. So my question is: you just now, you all three of you, you kind of um, mentioned this. I'm um, like, who cares and who will care? I'm an undergraduate student here at CUA, so this is something that I see a lot amongst my peers, and something that I'm grateful here at CUA that studying philosophy, I have a lot of great, super engaged um, peers, but. Kind of like with your experience, like how do we engage students? Because we might have like this intellectual concern, like are the humanities in crises? But like on a practical level, like is it within like this academic realm or is there a problem within the students as well? Like the students coming to the universities. Of course, I think that there's a problem like the high schools too. But yeah, like what can the students, like the quote unquote quality of the students maybe, what role does that play in? contributing to this crisis and
3: ultimately improving from it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in my experience, the problem actually isn't so much the students, it's the parents. The parents are the ones paying the tuition bills. The tuition bills are very high. And what I see is students who want to study philosophy and say, you know, mom wants me in the business school. Dad wants me in the business school. And the way that my university is structured as an institution, if you are in the business school, it is almost impossible for you to be a philosophy major. And that is by design, right? And when you really sit back and reflect on that, it tells you a lot about my university and the way that it has uh, understood itself and the way that it understands an education and so I don't really think it's so much the students, but I mean, I understand. <laughs> I mean, I have six kids and, and I'm looking at like college and I'm just like, oh, I don't know, maybe you could be a welder. It seems like a very noble, <laughs> process, very noble profession. So I, so I understand why parents feel this pressure to get a very good return on their investment. And they do see it as an investment because the reality is it's a huge investment they're making. But I, I think that, you know, it's a cultural crisis in a way, right? I mean, we don't value the goods at stake. We don't value them in primary education. We don't value them in, you know, so, so they come. So, so everyone's in this position now where they don't, they have no idea why you would study philosophy, It seems really weird, right? And there's no like elevator pitch I can give them because it, frankly, it takes a certain habit of mind, I think, or way of seeing the world to even enter into that conversation in a productive way. Now, practically speaking, what I have found is that you have to meet people on a very personal level. And something that I've been able to do since I have tenure is to really invest myself in my students in a way that I didn't before, really invest in them as human beings, as persons, which means spending time with them and listening to them and kind of being like a second mom to them uh, and getting them you know, to read St. Augustine, for example, not for a class, We just meet on a Sunday and we read the confessions. And it's surprising in our Thomistic Institute, going to plug the Thomistic Institute, Father Aquinas left, but (laughs) Thomistic Institute, you know, we have these Thomistic Institute reading groups where the majority of the people in the reading group are in the nursing school or in the business school or in real estate, you can major in real estate. So ridiculous. Um, I'm sorry to all the real estate majors. Uh, I I love you, and you're wonderful.
4: got a giant gift to start a real estate. Team. I bet they did. Yeah. I
3: bet they did. Um, so 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 we get together, and we have been reading the confessions, and it's just an it's an incredibly powerful experience for all of us, including me. And it's that kind of thing, right? You, ha- you, have to, you have to provide the opportunities for people to discover this. And it takes time. There's no, I wish there was, but there's no elevator pitch. There's no pamphlet that really brings them into this. They have to come to see the good in some sense by experiencing it. And the tragedy is that they have gone through 12 years of education without really loving learning. So that tells you something about our education system but that's a different obsession
4: yeah just just a a story that is is ongoing and it's it's actually with, with my 18 year old who um, you know so my wife his his mom uh, you know studied Shakespeare thought she was going to be a Shakespeare scholar until she actually met graduate students when we were at Berkeley and then you know I like to read you know so she decided not to do that and so uh, he's now 18. He just applied to college, he's a senior, and he's going to go off to college. My anxiety almost his entire life was twofold. One, most importantly, he wasn't a jock, <laughs> just to be honest. That's my lack of, of virtue because I was like, played sports. Uh, that's what I did. But he didn't like to read. And that, for, for, for his parents, that was. My wife is just a better person, so she was able to love him regardless. And me. <laughs> I'm not, it, 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 took, it took me 17 and a half years to, I think, actually love, you know and, and, <laughs> love him in the way my wife loved him, which was open and ready for surprise and ready to learn who he actually was. because for the past, since he was in sixth grade, in Charlottesville, he has been obsessed you know, with engineering and we've had these amazing engineering labs and he builds the most, I mean, you've probably seen him on my Twitter feed, the things that this kid builds. And so he, he he got a job at Wegmans during the first months of the pandemic so he could support his habit of building these insane things. It took me watching him and, and him literally down in the basement at 2 a.m., you know, we're all locked, you know, in the first six months of the thing. Showing me what he had built and why he had built it and the way he talked about his, you know, his, his latest uh, drift trike was one of the first things he he dri- He built the engine and everything. Um, the way he talked about that was the way I talked about Nija when I was, or, or Kafka. And then I think, so love, and trust has, has a lot to do with it. And also not to rag on the philosophers is that I see my son, he practices engineering as a liberal art. And also when you go, and so I've been writing to try to make sense of this, when you, go, when you read about the history of MIT and all these engineering institutions, they compare their technical training and what they want to do, they call them disciplines of the mind but instead of reading you know, and parsing Greek verbs, they're attending to mechanical processes that they claim have just as an intellectually formative power as these other things. And so that's a circuitous route back to your question. But to me, it, it, it took eight, 17 and a half years to see the capaciousness of the liberalness of, of learning and the forms that it can take. And it unfortunately for my son, it was it <laughs> it was you know manifested in 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 him and our relationship, but everybody else is gonna benefit from it. So, you know, he's good. Uh, so I, to me that 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 love and that capaciousness to see the goods that Zina and and, and and Jen are talking about in 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 so many ways, which makes all the sense in the world given, you know, the order of the cosmos, <laughs> it would be in so many more ways and forms than we can managed in our institutions.
0: So So I just say one quick thing, and I'm sorry, I see the other questions. Just, just the one quick thing, just because both of these, I totally am on board with everything they said, but they are both from the perspective of adults. I just want to say, you young people, you have so much power over your own life and over the lives of your friends. It's so simple. All you need to do is get together with one or two other people and read a book and, uh, and have conversations that are open-ended without an agenda, without a resume thing. And it, it really, it makes a huge difference. But I, I, I think it's one of, the, one of the diseases of our culture is this sense of passivity. is like, when is this going to happen? Um, and we all have choices. And you, you, know, you can do it. You can do it yourself with one or two other people. Um, And uh, and once you get in the habit of it, you'll see how much better it is to live that way. So I just wanna encourage you to, you don't have to wait for one of us to reach out to you, just do it.
4: Because college starts in kindergarten now right? The long slog, (laughs) right? Of of being disciplined and and reprimanded into excellence starts in kindergarten.
3: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So we, so I'm just mindful of the time. And so um, there are, there's going to be plenty of time to chat after it's sort of like officially over, but I'm just going to take the liberty since it's my podcast (laughs) of giving myself the last word. And well, first of all, to thank again, uh, Zena and Chad for, for joining us. Um, because I really do feel like I've understood your book better now. And I'm also like clarifying my own thoughts. Uh, I'm, I'm just, my own thoughts are becoming more articulate as a result of this conversation. But I guess just my, my final thought, the thing that I came to see too late, you know, in some sense, it's never too late is, is this idea that, and this is something that your book really, really clarified for me in a way, and that is that the intellectual life is stifled when it becomes competitive, when it becomes about your ambitions. And it's very, very hard for professors especially to confront this in a a really honest way because our whole profession (laughs) is about how ambitious we can be, how quickly we can go up the academic ladder. You know, it's not the same as the corporate ladder, but there is a ladder there. And it is a place, the, the, the academy has become a place of domination and ambition. And I don't mean ambition in the positive sense that like, you know, you're ambitious to find the truth. I mean ambitious in like the really, you know the sense that you want to be superior, you want to be better than other people. And I think that what all of us should be reflecting about, all of us in higher education, is thinking about how we can recover a spirit of cooperation, right? That we are after the same good. It's a common good. A common good shouldn't be competitive, right? And the extent to which we get honors and promotions is fine. I'm not, I am I've just got a promotion and I was very pleased about it. <laughs> so it's not bad in itself. What becomes bad or disordered is when you lose sight of the fact that we are after a common good. I would call that common good truth without apology. We are coming about it. We are coming at that common good like from our own disciplinary perspectives. But if it's really a common good, then it's something that we share, right? That we participate in together. And I think Aristotle is is so good at articulating this kind of good. And he constructs his whole account of friendship around this idea of a common good as the good shared between friends. And we have lost, it seems to me, the most important thing, which is intellectual friendship. As the university is the space where you really cultivate intellectual friendships, right? Which is a distinctive and and completely wonderful kind of friendship, right? Which Zena and I talk about in episode six (laughs) of this podcast, (laughs) and you should listen to And, and, and And I think that if that message we're getting to students, right? That the university is a place where you come to build a distinctive kind of rewarding friendship, that would be something meaningful. So with that, I guess we're, I don't know, I guess we're, we're done. I don't really know, I don't know how to close out a live episode, so I'm just going to say, I'm just going to uh, remark that there are cookies and refreshments and some things in the back, and we can continue the conversation, but not not officially as part of the podcast. Thanks.